Well, good morning, church. Thank you guys for being here and tuning in online. Uh, my name is Sean Russell, and uh, just before we jump into today's message, I wanted to share a few things that are going on at the church to get you guys plugged in and connected. One, um, we would love to be praying for you as you guys um, have things on your hearts or on your minds. As a church and as a staff and elder board here at ABC, uh, we count it an honor to be able to pray for you guys in and through those things. So if that's something that you would like, uh, you can just send those prayer requests weekly uh, or anytime, honestly, to us at prayer at ABC Church. Um, and then a few things to get plugged in here at ABC over the next couple weeks. One, this Sunday, we actually have a Sunday lunch right after the second service. So our second service is at 1045, shortly thereafter at about 1145. We're going to have hot dogs and chips and cookies and just an opportunity to gather in the courtyard and get to know some of the people from this church. Maybe you haven't met before or you haven't connected with in a little while. Uh, so we'd invite you to join us for that Sunday lunch. Uh, the next is uh, we're going to be hosting a blood drive um, Wednesday, uh, June 8th. So next Wednesday, June 8th, right here at the church. There's still spots available if you want to give in that way. You can sign up uh, on our website or on our homepage at abcchurch.org. Um, and then the last is, uh, again, a plea for help. Uh, as summer approaches and schedules change and many of our volunteers travel, uh, we're asking for volunteers to help out in kids' ministry. It takes a lot of folks to make our kids' ministry team work on a Sunday morning to serve all the kids that we have. Um, and so if that's something that you think that you could do, uh, we just ask you prayerfully consider it. You can be a substitute. You could teach in a classroom for a given uh, month. Um, just think about it um, and consider joining us. It's a great way to serve, cool opportunity to get connected at the church. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can email sandy at abcchurch.org. Uh, and again, uh, we're so glad you guys are here and hope you have a great day. Hello, ABC family. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Gerald. I have the privilege of serving here at Atascadero Bible Church as the discipleship pastor. And sometimes discipleship conversations just uh, include hard topics, and that really is where we're at today. We continue to preach our way through the book of Matthew, and we are in Matthew chapter 5 at the Sermon on the Mount. And today, Jesus stumbles upon, if you will, a very difficult topic, the topic of divorce. And as he does, he will also bring up two other hot-button issues in our culture today, those matters of sexual immorality and adultery. And I think it's important for you all to know uh, right up front here that while I have never been divorced, I do know firsthand the complication that sexual immorality brings into the context of a marriage. And like many of you, I have been stained by sexual sin. In addition to that, I have an ongoing struggle against the sins of people-pleasing and workaholism. I'm working on that in my 12-step group at Celebrate Recovery. And as a direct consequence of all my sin, my marriage with my precious wife, Lisa, has known the threat of divorce. But by God's grace, our story did not end there. We've seen God hold us together. And we're seeing him continue to use our differences to further refine us into the image of Christ. We've experienced his healing from our past sins, and we're presently living a more beautiful example of a unified marriage than before. Later in this message, I'll give you a few more details about what our experience is like. And as I do, I hope to offer those details to you as a source of comfort and as a source of perspective and hope today so that whatever your circumstances are, you might be met there by God 
and offered there his grace in the power of the Spirit. So today, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading at verse 31, just two verses this morning, 31 and 32. And before we turn to the, to the word, let's pray. Father, we come before you now with expectant hearts, knowing that you have promised that every scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So Lord, would you tune our ears to your voice and would you allow these verses about divorce to minister to us, to teach us, to instruct us, and to invite us into a deeper dependence on you. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. So reading from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 31, Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And here we are, right up front, we see that Jesus is speaking into a culture of easy divorce. And that's our first point this morning, is that easy divorce is the cultural norm. Um, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. As he does, he, he's doing a rough quote here of Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and that she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So as we read through that, you can tell that it seems like even in Moses' day, divorce easy divorce was like the cultural norm. It, you could divorce somebody for little more than a whim, the way it sounds to me. And the clear teaching of Jesus here in Matthew 5 exposes this as an error. In Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 5, Jesus answers a question of the Pharisees about divorce, and he explains to them that, yes, Moses wrote that it is possible for a person to divorce his wife, and if he does, he's to give her a certificate. But he allowed that because of the hardness of their heart. You see, divorce was, for almost any reason, including maybe a burned dinner. And I'm just curious, uh, any of you ever burnt a dinner out there? According to this cultural expectation, you could be divorced. Guys, any of you ever leave that toilet seat up? Divorce. Women, ever been guilty of mood swings that just defy logic? Divorce. <laughs> the fact is, in this culture that Jesus is speaking into, divorce was the norm. And a mere certificate was what, uh, in the religious leader's eyes, was all that was required to make it valid. 
And this certificate was an important but simple document that showed that she had been abandoned by her husband and is no longer married and therefore was eligible to be taken as a wife. And this is important. According to one of my sources that I consulted, the essential part of a Jewish bill of divorce consisted of the words, you are free to marry any man. And this statement that you, this woman would be free to marry any man was important because according to another scholar, a divorced woman in Palestine of that day had few choices. To survive, she could remarry and beco or become a prostitute. In either case, she would be guilty of adultery. So culturally speaking, this certificate of divorce that gave her the right to remarry was really what she depended on for her ongoing well-being. And this quotation of Deuteronomy 24 represented the moral thinking of the day regarding divorce, and, and it had on, honestly been stretched beyond its original intent to validate an easy divorce mentality. Now, at this point, I think it makes sense for us to define divorce as we proceed to talk through this. And I understand that to be the legal ending of a marriage. That's actually the Holman Bible Dictionary. If you're doing some Bible study work, you can find a Bible dictionary written by a variety of scholars, and it helps you understand some of the cultural issues going on, which helps us understand and be able to interpret the words that we have here. So according to the Holman Bible Dictionary, divorce is the legal ending of a marriage. And with that, let me just say that just because something is legal does not mean that it is required or faithful or wise. And yet I need to step back at that point and acknowledge that each of us who is listening to this and is here today, uh, we are here representing a variety of circumstances, a variety of pain, a variety of complications that make some of these words hard for us to hear. And my intention today is to faithfully teach and preach what the Bible has to say. Spoken, these words spoken by the mouth of Jesus. And I'm trusting that God will use his word to teach each of us. He will meet us here with his grace and that his grace will be sufficient for us, whatever our current circumstances are. So now Jesus continues in verse 32. And as he does that, he exposes the error of an easy divorce culture. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the question that we need to ask as we further explore this is, what are the results of divorce according to Jesus? And according to verse 32 here, if you divorce somebody you force them to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The end result is, is that you end up breaking the seventh commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, God gives his ten commandments to the people, and the seventh one listed is, you shall not commit adultery. Now remember, these ten laws that God gave his people through Moses were designed to be the covenant uh, of behavior between God and his people. And God says, I will be your God. And he's, he says, if you are to be my people, your lives shall be characterized by these 10 commandments. 
And one of them is, is that you shall not commit adultery. And lest we fall into the, to the error of thinking that God is just a killjoy who wants to put restrictions on our life that prevent us from living a full life, listen to what God says about his commands in Deuteronomy 5, verse 29. He says, Oh, that they had such a mind as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Do you hear God's heart? He gives his commandments that if we walk in them, if we keep them, it would go well with us and not just us, but with our descendants. God's heart behind this is always for our good. So the next question, how does divorcing one's wife make her commit adultery? Like, how does that follow logically? And in order to answer this question, we need to ask and answer a series of other questions. So let's start with marriage. What is marriage, according to Jesus? Marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus addressed the Pharisees when they questioned him about divorce. And he took them back to Genesis and he showed them God's intention for marriage expressed in his created order. In Genesis 1, verse 27, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And in Genesis 2, verse 24, Adam and Eve now have been brought together. He formed Eve out of a rib from Adam's side. And God says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. These two are being brought together by God, and the two become one flesh. The prophet Malachi actually speaks into this several hundred years later, which is about 500 years before Jesus says these words that are recorded in Matthew. And as he does that, he he addresses the faithlessness of the people of Israel, and he answers their question, And their question is this, why doesn't God seem to honor our sacrifices anymore? And Malachi gives this reason. He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Now that final verse that that question that he asks, did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? That tells us that this one flesh union that exists between a husband and a wife includes a portion of the spirit. There is a three-pronged cord here. Whether we intend that to be the case or not, it is the case biblically. When a husband and a wife come together, God knits them together with a third cord, the cord of his spirit. So therefore, a definition of marriage biblically in Jesus' understanding, is that marriage is a lifelong, monogamous relationship between one woman and one man put together by God with a portion of his spirit in their one flesh union. It's no wonder then that Jesus says of this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And if you've been to a wedding lately, you have heard those very words recorded at the wedding. And it's, it's because of this, 
What it means is that the marriage covenant can only be broken by death. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. This is why most weddings include vows that state, until death do us part. This also means that the marriage bond, that union with the spirit, that one flesh union, also lasts until death. And Paul addresses this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 7, beginning at verse 2. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. You see, there's a supernatural uniting of two persons into one, together with a portion of God's Spirit that can't be broken on this side of death without losing a portion of yourself to the other person and vice versa. This is why sexual immorality is so damaging to society in general and to families in particular. And if I can just push pause and lean in here and look you in the eye and say, please protect yourself and please protect your children from sexual immorality. Our culture is sexually charged and saturated and we need to be intentional as disciples of Jesus to lean in and protect our own hearts from this and our children's hearts from becoming over-sexualized and believing lies about human sexuality. Now, getting back to our text in Matthew chapter 5, this is how divorcing a woman makes her commit adultery. You see, she commits adultery with her next husband, according to this passage from Matthew 5. And her second husband commits adultery with her. It's considered adultery because the original marriage to her original husband is still binding in God's eyes. That one flesh union has not been broken by death. And the marriage bond that God put together with a portion of his spirit, that remains intact even though she has been given a certificate of divorce. And remember, that certificate of divorce is just a simple piece of paper that declares that these two are no longer married in the eyes of society. So, that being the case, Jesus does recognize that there are some circumstances that validate divorce in God's eyes. And here we find that in verse 32. You see that Jesus provides an exception clause, that of sexual immorality. We find this right in the middle of 32. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. I'm reading out of the ESV, and that's, that's how that is translated, except on the ground of sexual immorality. The word, the Greek word in the original that is translated in the ESV as sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. The New American Standard would use these words, except for the reason of unchastity. And the New International Version would use it this way, except for marital unfaithfulness. So a simple reading of this verse seems to reveal that divorcing one's wife on the basis of sexual immorality does not make her commit adultery. You understand? How can that be? 
And to answer this question, how can divorcing her on the basis of sexual immorality resu not result in her committing adultery, we need to answer another series of questions. The first question we need to answer is, what does the word porneia mean? This Greek word that is translated sexual immorality by the ESV. According to a Greek lexicon, it means unlawful sexual intercourse. And the law here that is being referred to is God's law, not the laws of society. Another way to look at it, it uh, porneia, is any sort of sexual experience outside of God's design. You see, God is the designer of sex, and he's designed it to be a unifying act. And in the words of Rob Lister, professor of theology at Biola University, it's an I still do ceremony within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And the Holman Bible Dictionary goes on and says this, Outside the limits established by God, sex becomes an evil and a destructive force in human life, calling for God's redemptive power to deliver humans trapped therein. So porneia, this word that is translated sexual immorality, it's also important for us to recognize that it is the root of our word pornography which means sexually immoral writings or images. Porn, sexually immoral, graphe, writing, images. So this comes up with another question that you're probably wrestling with. Is the use of pornography one type of sexual immorality that provides biblical grounds for divorce? And to that, I say that the biblical answer is maybe. You see, technology was different. But I know that people were writing on papyrus back then. That's the scrolls that were used in the temple. And I imagine that people were also drawing pictures on such mediums as canvas and papyrus. And is it possible that someone would draw some pornographic images on those? I suppose so. And in an effort to find a biblical and a faithful answer to this question, let's do some more research. And then the next step of research is, what does the Bible say about porneia? What does it say about this Greek word that has been translated sexual immorality? In Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, it says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, fornications, theft, fault witness, and slander. And porneia in that context is translated as fornications. So it is one of the things that comes out of the heart and defiles a person. Thinking back to last week's message by Jeff, talking about the sins of the heart, sexual immorality, fornications, porneia is in that list of sins of the heart. Now, in the early church, when the gospel is advancing from the people of Israel to the Gentile nations, they see that, and, and the people were, some people were imposing that they should be circumcised in order to be saved. So the apostles got together in Jerusalem and they held a council and they discerned is it necessary for someone to be circumcised in order to truly be a believer? And what they came up with was that there were four things that would be necessary for these Gentile believers. One of the things was not circumcision, but it was that they would abstain from sexual immorality.
1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that the body is not meant for porneia, sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Porneia is a sin against the body, not outside the body. In Galatians 5, it is one of the works of the flesh which are at war against the spirit. In Ephesians 5, it is not to be named among the church. In Colossians 3, it is among the things that are to be put to death. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, it gets so clear. God says this. He says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And the word there is porneia. Sometimes the Bible is just refreshingly clear. And God's will is that none of us would sin sexually, meaning that we abstain from any and all sexual activity outside of the God-designed context of marriage between one man and one woman. And now we, rebellious people, hear that and we go, and what if I don't? What are the consequences or the results of participating in porneia? In the context of today's passage in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying that if a man divorces his wife on the ground of sexual immorality, that that divorce does not result in her committing adultery with the next person. And the reason is this, because she has already committed adultery. This goes the other way around as well. If a woman divorces her husband on the grounds of sexual immorality, he has stepped outside of the faithful bond of their marriage covenant, then she does not make him commit adultery because he already has committed adultery. Next question, what does porneia, sexual immorality, do to the marriage bond? Jesus seems to be saying here that sexual immorality breaks the marriage bond, the one flesh union, because the act of adultery has in some way initiated a subsequent one flesh union a bond with that other person. And since the bond of the one flesh union between the husband and the wife has been severed or at least severely damaged, the act of adultery, this becomes one reason that validates divorce of Jesus according to this passage. Now it's worth noting, Jesus does not say that the victim in this case is obligated to pursue divorce. He or she is allowed to pursue divorce. And I have seen a beautiful example of this. There was a man who was not faithful to his wife and he got found out and was repentant and went through a series of church discipline and years of working his way through entrusting himself to the gospel. This wife chose to be a beautiful example to her children of what it looks like to extend supernatural grace from God to her husband and to demonstrate the power of the gospel in forgiving him. And now, five or six years later, they are living a beautifully unified marriage because God's power is sufficient to help us in our deepest needs. So here Jesus is saying, you're allowed to divorce on the basis of sexual immorality, but we are not commanded or, or necessitated to divorce. Now back to our previous question. Is the use of pornography one type of sexual immorality that provides biblical grounds for divorce? Maybe. God did not design us to have some surface level relationship with others mediated through the use of technology. 
Viewing pornography lacks the biblical one flesh union that Jesus clearly says in this passage breaks the bond of marriage. So it fails to meet that test. However, if the person is unrepentant and refuses to get help for his or her addiction, they may have practically abandoned their spouse in an ongoing practical way. They have assimilated for themselves an idolatrous, immoral lifestyle, a lifestyle that looks more like that of an unbeliever. And the Bible does make allowance for divorce on the grounds of abandonment by an unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 7. You can read more about this in this week's reading plan that you can find listed on your sermon notes. Now, seeking a faithful answer to this question is about as messy as it gets, folks. Trying to parse out whether or not pornography use is actually the sexual immorality that Jesus is speaking, it just doesn't get any messier than that. It necessitates making a biblically informed, Holy Spirit-directed judgment call on a case-by-case basis. And if this is one of the things that you are facing in life, I invite you to lean in and allow a wise, godly, biblical man or woman to walk with you through this. Please don't feel like you need to figure this out alone. Lean into the church, lean into godly people that you rub elbows with regularly, that you trust, and let us, let them help you work your way through this. By God's grace, he'll provide all the grace that is required to meet you there. Lastly, let's examine some of the consequences of living in an easy divorce culture. The first one, many people look to divorce, not to Jesus, to deliver them from the pain of a difficult relationship. Lisa and I know this tug in our relationship all too well. Back in the early 90s, we married. I'm a farm boy, she was a city girl. Brought the city girl out to the farm and I started farming and ranching professionally with with my parents on the family farm. And simultaneously, we began to raise a family. And I'm a hardworking, uh, I think at this point I look back, I think I'm I'm a workaholic. And I'm up before the sun and I'm out until the sun comes down. And on a regular basis, Lisa would call me and ask, when are you coming home for dinner? And my answer was always, when the work is done. She just, in my mind, she didn't understand the work ethic required of being a professional farmer and a rancher. When I would meet at the door, she would sometimes hold out a child like this and say, here, this is yours. And she just needed help. She was exhausted, three kids under the age of three and a half in diapers, and she needed my time, not my money. And in my ignorance, I thought I had a perfect marriage. I thought life was great. I just thought we had a little disagreement because she didn't understand my work ethic. Now, in the midst of her pain, she reached out to her parents who live in Bakersfield and said, Mom, I've gotta leave this guy. I'm exhausted. He's no help to me. All he does is work and I just want out. And Mom, in her wisdom, said, yeah, you can come out, but we're gonna bring Gerald out too. Bring the whole family. And so I think it was Easter week, probably of 1999, we flew out and spent a week in Bakersfield and got poured into. 
After that week, I went home to calve out the cows and Lisa stayed another week or two with the kids. And in that time, her parents looked at her and said, what kind of a legacy do you want to live? And really challenged Lisa to lean into Jesus and to double down in her dependence on him. And they doubled down in prayer for me because I thought I was a believer at that time, but I wasn't. Jesus had no practical traction in my life. And later that year, I would trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, and my eyes would begin to get opened, and my life would begin to turn around, and with it, my priorities would turn, and I would begin that awkward transition of learning what it meant to be a loving husband to my wife, a loving father to my children, and to have my priorities in order so that the way I invested my time and my brain space, my money and everything would testify to that. The solution in that, not to look to divorce in your difficult relationship, but look to Jesus. Make Jesus the center of your difficult relationship and receive there the grace that he has for you in that place. Secondly, we can tend to see divorce as the norm and we can fail to recognize that the sin of adultery abounds as a result. Now the solution in this is to realize that your current marriage is God's will for you. Doesn't matter if it's your first, your second, your third, or others. Your current marriage is God's will for you. You can rest in this truth. Husband, work diligently in the power of the Spirit to love your wife. Wife, work diligently in the power of the Spirit to love and respect your husband. Repent of your sins against one another. Seek and extend forgiveness to each other. Work diligently to rebuild that unity and maintain that trust. That trust with God and that trust with one another. Lastly, a consequence of living in an easy divorce culture is that people struggle to build unity in marriage because we fail to realize that in many cases, the one flesh unions of our former relationships don't just evaporate, even with the signing of divorce papers. I've had to go through this process. I've had to name each person that I had a sexual encounter with prior to marrying my wife. I had to call it sin. I had to confess it to God. And I had to renounce it. I had to prayerfully break the bond that was created in our one flesh union and thereby recognize that the enemy no longer had that as a place to mess around in my life. See, the Bible teaches us to do this thing in Titus chapter 2, where God says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. We tend to confess and I don't think confessing goes far enough. We need to renounce. We need to prayerfully go to war and break those bonds of those previous relationships that we might have unity in our current relationships. So the solution here is to confess the sins of sexual immorality that you have committed prior to this relationship or even while in this relationship and renounce each one as sin, breaking the bonds that resulted in your union with that person. That's a lot, folks. This is heavy stuff. This is messy stuff. And I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't know what level of conviction the Spirit is weighing upon you now in light of all that we've talked about today. 
but I can assure you of this, God's grace is sufficient to meet you right where you are. And I don't think God wants you to wrestle with this alone. In fact, I know he doesn't. He wants you to lean in and trust him by entrusting yourself to others. We have ministries in this church that can minister to you in beautiful ways. If you're married and need a little bit of help through this sort of thing, we have a marriage mentor ministry. You can reach out on our website or call the church office and you can just ask a question and we'd be glad to begin to build a, a mentor couple around you to help you think through and work through the marital challenges that you're currently facing. If you're divorced, we have a ministry called Divorce Care where you can learn to experience God's grace right there in that grief and that pain of divorce. We have many people working through the hurts of marriage and divorce in Celebrate Recovery. We meet on Thursday nights at seven o'clock in the worship center. We are glad to pray with you and help you walk through these circumstances so that you can experience God's grace right where you are hurting, right in the midst of your pain. We'll come alongside you. We'll seek Jesus with you. We'll consult scripture with you. We'll seek to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And folks, I just got to admit, we, even your pastors, are fallen people. And sometimes we get it wrong. But our heart's desire is to do right by God and to do right by you and to walk with you and to create an environment that's safe for you to wrestle with these ideas where you can experience God's grace and healing for you. And if I may just offer also a word of caution. As you think about this, you might have somebody else's name in mind. And I just caution you to not tell somebody else's story but to lean in and allow the truths that you're hearing today to minister to you in your circumstances. Let that other person tell their own story and seek their own help. Advocate for your own growth in this area first. So folks, let's pray together and see how the Spirit wants us to live in light of these truths. Lord, we come to you now on this end of this message in Jesus' name acknowledging that we need your wisdom, acknowledging that we need uh, the discernment of the Holy Spirit, and asking that you would minister to each person right where they are, and that you would bring healing in the power of the Spirit according to your word to them right where they are. Lord, we entrust ourselves into your care and to your control, knowing that all that you do, all that you say, all that you decree is for our ultimate good and for your ultimate glory. So we pray that you would have your way among us, even today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in, even on uh, a difficult passage such as this one. We love you. We're grateful for you. And it's our joy to walk with you through life. Have a great week.